Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly technology report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, one of the proud Ukrainian-American women who has founded an innovative company developing unmanned aircraft, counter-unmanned technologies, as well as cyber capabilities to help Ukraine beat back Russian aggression. But first, joining us now is David Schild, the executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, the voice of America's Printed Circuit Board uh, makers. Uh, David, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you. A, a pleasure indeed. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, obviously, an unprecedented investment by the United States to reinvigorate the U.S. semiconductor uh, industry. Um, while at the same time, the Biden administration is continuing Trump administration efforts to degrade Chinese uh, chip uh, capabilities, but chips alone are only uh, a third of the uh, equation. Um, Explain to the audience, uh, because I think that a lot of people don't understand how important the circuit board, uh, printed circuit board part of this equation is, walk us through the ecosystem and why the printed circuit boards are actually one of the most important weak links in this chain. Very happy to do it, and thanks for having me. I think that the CHIPS Act is a tremendous first step. We see $52 billion in government investment in the critical technology sector, and as a result, we see almost $450 billion in private money getting off the sidelines. It shows that private industry follows public action. Now we need to finish the job. We need to complete the rest of the technology stack and emphasize that chips don't float. We simply cannot (laughs) invest solely in semiconductors, in any piece of electronics that you would find today. And this is everything from an F-35 to an F-150. You would find a semiconductor sitting on top of an integrated circuit substrate, sitting on top of a printed circuit board. All technologies that we invented in the United States, but unfortunately, over a period of 30 years, we offshored a lot of that manufacturing capability. And so now- our industry has shrunk considerably. And let's put that in context. When the semiconductor industry started roughly five years ago, talking about the need for an investment in semiconductor manufacturing and capacity, they were at 13% of global market share. That was enough for folks in Congress, uh, sort of in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, to take action. By contrast, America once made, let's say 25 years ago, 30% of the world's printed circuit boards or PCBs And that meant about 2,200 companies producing boards for every possible application you can think of. Today, that number is only 4% of the global market. That's 2,200 companies in the year 2000 and less than 150 companies today. So we have contracted sharply. Most of that work has gone overseas. A great deal of it has gone to Asia. And 56% of the world market is currently coming out of mainland China. Um, so if uh, you guys obviously are uh, backing uh, the new uh, printed circuit board uh, bill that's uh, before uh, Congress uh, right now, what's the measure say and why is it so important? Thanks. The Printed Circuit Board uh, and Substrates Act or PCBs Act is really focused on two things. 
a direct investment like we saw with the CHIPS Act. In this case, it's $3 billion to allow manufacturers to build new facilities, hire new workers, buy the equipment and tooling that they need to manufacture printed circuit boards and integrated circuit substrates. The second part of the bill, what I think is really the game changer, is a 25% tax credit on the purchase of American-made PCBs and substrates. And this is so important, Vago, because it creates the demand signal. It says to folks who want to diversify their supply chains, who want to de-risk and decouple right, from certain nations where we have sometimes an adversarial relationship, you can buy American and you can still be cost competitive. We can made up your uh, risk management and your supply chain bottom line, and we can win by making things closer to home. I don't think it makes any sense to build a new semiconductor facility in Chandler, Arizona or Columbus, Ohio and then ship those chips overseas to be part of a total technology stack that everything relies on. That doesn't seem secure. It doesn't seem resilient to me. Uh, the administration also is talking about uh, the role of allies and partners and friendshoring, uh, even as we work on uh, these uh, capabilities, right? There, uh, there is a concern uh, by uh, some of our uh, allies and partners that we're um, you know, being protectionist and working to advance our industries, even though in each and every single case, the United States, they, whatever the United States invests on benefits our allies and partners. What does an allied uh, allied partnered approach look like in the printed circuit uh, board uh, field? I think that we would do well to make friendshoring a part of our strategy. Of course, I represent American manufacturers and we need to see an increase in capacity right here in the United States. But we understand that our allies in Europe, uh, folks here in North America, Mexico, Canada, um, and certainly allied partners in Asia, right? Malaysia, the Philippines, Taiwan, South Korea, they're going to have a role to play here too. What we need to do is reduce our dependency on places that by man-made or natural disaster might be unreliable partners for us and might not be a place where we want to manufacture certain critical technologies. And I think this is an important distinction. Nobody is trying to undo the global economy or stop the fact that manufacturing is overseas for a variety of legitimate reasons. What we are saying is that in the critical technology space, and that's beyond the things that are ITAR controlled right now for defense and aerospace, it includes, by my definition, certainly things like banking, things like the medical sector, right. things like the energy grid. Those sectors of the economy, which are so reliant on microelectronics, I think you would find are populated by microelectronics from places that you know, might not make sense from a national security or economic security perspective. Okay. So clearly you're talking about China, right? What's the balance point, right? Because some of uh, your companies obviously have operations in China uh, as well, right? I mean, this capability didn't flow to the, uh, to lower cost makers around the world uh, in mysterious fashion, right? What are the things that actually the Chinese can continue supplying and is actually perfectly fine if they continue supplying? I think you and, see, and what not, right? As you said, in terms of critical componentry. Yeah, I think that what you're going to see is a bifurcation between those technologies which we should consider critical, and the government must expand that definition, and the things that are simply commercial products where market forces are always going to keep things, I think, off our shores. So, for example, if you want to talk about the printed circuit board or the substrate that goes into a dishwasher or a garage door opener, I don't have any concerns about where that's manufactured. 
And, you know, I could probably go out to my garage right now and crack open that machine and say, hey, you know, made in China, not something that I'm going to lose any sleep over. But as I said, when you talk about the technology that runs Wall Street, when you talk about the technology that runs all of our critical infrastructure systems, when you talk about the deployment of 5G towers, telecommunications infrastructure, excuse me, now I think we have to ask harder questions that are already being asked in many sectors of the government about where this technology comes from. Let's redefine critical and let's keep, I would say, commoditized commercial applications where they're currently being made. Um, is there a danger, a protectionist danger here? Because um, there are concerns that whenever we make these kind of national investments, right, it's it's great to get that investment capital in there and be developing the next generation of capability. I don't think anybody um, uh, challenges that. But for example, in automobiles, right, I mean, we had, unfortunately, Detroit became uncompetitive uh, because we tried to shield it from better products from overseas. Uh, and we had a collapse and we had to bail out car makers. And one of the reasons why American cars now are as good as foreign cars is because of that competition, ultimately. How much of this has to happen, right? I mean, what what is percentage-wise, how much of this should be happening to the United States? It, it should be happening in the United States in terms of the overall demand, right? I mean, you said you're at 4% now, roughly, uh, from American manufacturers. What's the natural level for us to address the necessary security and infrastructure needs that we have, but do it in a way that it actually doesn't become a subsidized industry where pe- people are buying American stuff, not because it's good, but because they sort of have to and they get a tax break, I guess. Yeah, I would say two things, Vago. I think the first thing is that no one's interested in a race to the bottom here, and we are not pushing uh, tariffs or restrictions as much as we are pushing incentives. And As an adjunct to that, I would say we are playing catch up on industrial policy. Sometimes the conversation in this um, space is about putting your hand on the scale or saying that the U.S. government is going to pick winners and losers. The reality is that foreign governments for I think the better part of the last half century have been subsidizing industries that they want to own. Everything from rare earths to microelectronics, you see a factory where the land is free. You see a road that the government builds. You see subsidized housing for the workforce. And these are long-term strategic decisions by other countries that want to own critical verticals. They want to own certain technology sets. So what we're doing, let's say in the last five years, is really playing catch-up. It's not leading on industrial policy. It's trying to pace what other great powers are doing. And so I don't think it's irresponsible for us to do that. And as I said, a future portfolio keeps critical technology manufacturing in the United States, and it diversifies existing commercial supply chains so that you're not so dependent on one source that it's risky. When I talk to vice presidents of purchasing, when I talk to heads of supply chain at big companies, what they say is that the COVID-19 pandemic showed them how risky it is to be dependent on a single source, and they want to friendshore, reshore, de-risk, and decouple. The government has a role to play to make sure that that doesn't hurt their bottom line as well. Um, Talk to us a little bit about some of the specific uh, technologies and where uh, we need to be getting uh, better, right? Um, At the end of the day, I mean, there are only about five uh, or so, four or five companies, and you're going to correct me on this, 
uh, you know, that that constitute American industry, uh, ultimately, or the leaders. And this is a very capital intensive business, right? I mean, it's, it's as sophisticated in some respects, uh, you know, as you're looking in terms of chip production, right, in terms of the lithography machines, uh, all of the things that enable you to put on those very, very thin layers uh, of connectivity that modern, modern, modern chips need. What, what is what are the specific areas of investment? Who are the leaders in it? And how does the United States sort of regain the lead? Because in some of this, we, we tend to sort of lead theoretically, but the machines tend to be elsewhere. Anyway, sort of w w walk us through some of the specific technology slices of this that we've got to get better at. That's a great thing to discuss, Vago, because one of the things you keep hearing about the CHIPS Act is that it will foster development of next generation semiconductors, right? At whatever measure of nanometer, you know, you choose to talk about. The reality is that next generation semiconductors need next generation printed circuit boards and substrates. Sometimes you'll hear the word um, ultra high density interconnect being tossed around. And that's something that the Pentagon is very interested in because as chips get more and more complex, the PCBs and the mating layer, the IC substrate layer becomes that much more important, right? It has to function in very dynamic environments, very challenging environments. It has to be able to handle um, you know, increased heat loads. It has to be able to uh, survive a lot of uh, dynamic forces, shall we say, certainly in defense and aerospace applications. And it's not just a, a dumb piece of plastic. In fact, there's very little plastic at all. You would find a mix of precious metals, woven glass, copper foil, uh, and any number of uh, critical and precious materials that we also have a I would say insecure supply chain around, right? We're down to one manufacturer doing woven glass in this country. We're down to two manufacturers doing copper foil. Um, we have a, a pretty high dependency on the raw materials when it comes to what goes into microelectronics. But if you were to visit a board shop and look at a board destined for a Spy 6 radar or a Javelin missile, you would see a lot of automation. You would see a lot of high-touch manual labor as well and highly trained technicians taking you from a raw material to a finished product on the end that's going to end up in the hands of one of your defense primes. So as we see the chip makers innovating, we know what must follow, and the Pentagon most importantly knows that what must follow is a new generation of printed circuit board, a new generation of IC substrate. Almost as important as whether we make it here is whether we invent it here. And so often, Vago, so often, innovation is co-located with production. When you move the factory overseas, inevitably you, you move the engineering staff, the R&D overseas as well. So right. what you're going to see, I think, in these manufacturing nodes that Secretary Raimondo discusses often is chip factories surrounded by PCB factories, surrounded by substrate factories, uh, test facilities, any number of assemblers, ultimately the OEMs that put products together, that's the ecosystem that we want to build. Uh, let me ask you uh, one last question. The administration uh, and Washington has been eager, obviously, to invest in U.S. capabilities, but also follow up on what President Trump uh, had done, which is to try to hamstring uh, uh, Chinese uh, access uh, to lithography machines. We have the Dutch, Japanese, and a number of our allies and partners uh, on it. Last week, we had a, a new set of measures. Uh, and yet, uh, when Commerce Secretary Raimondo visited China, uh, Huawei unveiled its seven nanometer phone, uh, indicating an, uh, with an upthrust middle finger 
Um, we're able to develop these. Uh, and if you want to go to four nanometers, we're going to get to four nanometers as, as well, which is sort of the next generation. From your standpoint, how effective have these measures ultimately have been to hamstring Chinese uh, capability? I, you know, or or does that preset, you know, or does it ultimately sort of not make that big of a difference? What's your sense as somebody who's far closer to this I'm, live wire? I'm very impressed with what the manufacturing numbers that we see coming out just in the last couple of months indicate about the effect that the CHIPS Act has had. I really think that inside of industry, people are waiting for a demand signal and people are waiting for a sign that the government is making a long-term play here. And the ROI to take $52 billion in government money, a great deal of which I might have ended up at the Pentagon, and see $450 billion come off the sidelines, it shows you that many business leaders now are taking seriously that the government is tackling this issue and wants to rebalance global portfolios. We are focused in some respects, the NDAA is a perfect example of this, on getting risky and adversarial-based products out of the defense supply chain. We've had language in the NDAA for, now for three years in a row that says to the Pentagon, by 2027, you've got to get printed circuit boards and substrates from certain countries out of your COTS supply chain because we know it's there. So certainly there's a an element of restriction tied to national security. But in terms of economic opportunity, I do think that investing in American capacity is good for what we'll need in the near term and also potential surge capabilities we might need in the longer term. And we have done this before. We have done this before with space launch. We have done this before with military engines. You see it being done with rare earths. The Pentagon, I think, was one of the early um, leaders in terms of understanding that in order to field the best technology, whether it flies, whether it floats, however it fights, we have to have some domestic manufacturing in these sectors. So semiconductors is a great start, but we're less focused on, let's say, uh, punishing an adversary than we are promoting our own strength. Um, but uh, very briefly, what's your sense, right? If we are imposing these sanctions and the Chinese are able to do what they do um, and still advance, what does that tell us about the efficacy of moves like this, right? Could they what, what's your sense on their efficacy? My own sense is that it's it's very early to uh, declare victory or defeat because they are playing, our adversaries are playing a long game. They're thinking in terms of 50 to 100 years. And unfortunately, I think some of the short-term thinking that we have in this country has led us to this state. So I would say if it took the printed circuit board industry you know, almost 30 years to contract so dramatically, we're not going to see in – 30 days, 30 months, a dramatic turnaround or a dramatic shift, but we need to take the first step. And that's what you see with chips. It took a long time for the semiconductor industry to shrink to 13%. And we are going to you know, dig ourselves out of that hole slowly but surely with the new facilities that are coming online. I think you're going to see the capacity start to creep up. But it's a global competition. As you said, I expect that it will remain extremely competitive. The challenges you know in Washington is to stop people from taking a victory lap and patting themselves on the back and saying, we fixed it. We solved it. We're going to have to stay committed to this fight, I think, over the long term in order to remain competitive, but also secure in the technologies that we depend on. 
David, thanks so very much for uh, joining us and look forward to having you back uh, on regularly uh, to give us updates on uh, what is uh, a critical national capability. Thanks so very much. Appreciate your hard work on this. Thanks, Vago. And joining us now is Veronica Mudra, the CEO of the California-based drone, counter-drone, and cyber company Alter Ego that was founded and is run by Ukrainian-American women. Uh, Veronica, thanks so very much for joining us, and uh, Laskovo Prosimo. Uh, thank you so much for uh, your kind introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here and have an opportunity to share our journey with you and your audience. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure, and uh, that's a great place to start, uh, Veronica. Tell us a little bit about Alter Ego and how it was founded uh, and what you guys hope to accomplish. Um, so our journey as a cybersecurity company um, has been shaped by a deep commitment to making a positive impact. Um, I personally came from a nonprofit uh, background, and I've been working for about eight years with the veterans in the U.S. and in Ukraine on gender-based violence protection programs. And wow. um, yeah, so uh, we've been working with the U.S. Department of VA for the past uh, three, four years really actively. But after the beginning of the war in Ukraine, and we do have an office over there as well, uh, we uh, volunteered a lot, just like everyone else who is Ukrainian, even living abroad in our office in Ukraine, volunteered a lot in the space of um, communication and administrative um, assistance in communication between um, cybersecurity groups and what is called ethical hackers, uh, what became more known as the Cyber Army of Ukraine. And uh, from that point on, we understood that we just have uh, uh, a great asset and a great lesson to learn and great knowledge of people who are ethical and very dedicated and very, very loyal to democracy values. This is very important, meaning being ethical to uh, U.S. and the U.S. allies and um, and these people with unique knowledge, unique uh, expertise in cyber offense and cyber defense operation can really benefit the Western world how to better be prepared to uh, cyber attacks that we currently see happening uh, all over the world and in the U.S. as well. Um, let me uh, take you, I know I want to talk a little bit uh, about uh, cyber in a moment, but you guys are also a drone and counter drone company. Um, you fuse these kind of uh, capabilities for betting, having you know more hardened defenses uh, of these systems. There are tens of thousands uh, of drones, uh, unfortunately, involved in the war on both sides. Uh, what is it that distinguishes what you guys do and how you do it? What's What makes you guys unique, whether it's in the drone, the counter drone, or in the cyber space because it's a very competitive business right uh the difference is that uh we um handpick battlefield born and battlefield proven technologies and often it's very 
uh, low budget production. I, I can give you a very specific example. For example, we work with Georgian National Legion, which is an international volunteer military battalion within the uh, Ukrainian Armed Forces. They developed uh, on the battlefield, technically in a garage, without having R&D lab, uh, a ground drone called, called Kamikaze, a, a Legion Kamikaze. It's a mine layer machine, right? That was developed by members of this uh, battalion, by the soldiers who had a necessity to have this tool and they did not have a proper mine layer machine. So we are very uh, connected on the ground in Ukraine with battalions, with people on the battlefield, on the front line. So um, uh, the technologies born there are very uh, low cost, but very effective. So what we what we did, we just handpicked a bunch of uh, technologies like that, including even uh, we have some models of 3D printed drones for right. uh, for special operations, right? We have uh, interest in counter drone solutions, but everything is technically battlefield born, battlefield proven. So as, as a smaller company, we we handpick the most unique interest in technologies that right. people in the U.S., will just not know because they're just too right. small, but super effective. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, the extraordinary uh, approach the Ukrainian government has taken, right? Um, it has become a digital government because of the war. Uh, there's virtually no bureaucracy. Uh, ideas are shared broadly. So, you know, the Ukrainian nation really has come together worldwide to be able to do these solutions where ideas can come from the battlefield, get sent to you. You guys refine it uh, and 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 then uh, forward it uh, so that they get produced, uh, for example, in, in, in Ukraine or even ship capabilities over there. What are some of the lessons, Veronica, America can learn? I mean, you know, the Pentagon is actually studying the Ukrainian approach to see how we can do things smarter, faster, cheaper, uh, with greater agility. From your standpoint, as somebody who sees both of this side, right, and you guys also uh, uh, are, are doing work with the U.S. Defense Department, what are some of the important lessons that you think can improve how it is we deliver capability in the future that we can learn from Ukraine? Um, so I can talk from our very practical experience in cyber field because it's very is is the field that probably speaks uh, speaks for itself. So um, we when we first publicly presented our company this April, actually in Pentagon during the um, ACI conference on the new emerging technologies and lessons learned in Ukraine, we gave a good example of how um, ethical hackers those are certified highly skilled cybersecurity professionals from around the world were able to join um, the cyber army of ukraine to join the efforts known as a cyber army of ukraine so what i would uh for example suggest if i may mm. for the u.s governmental agencies is to be a bit more flex flexible when it comes to um, involvement of independent but very highly skilled cybersecurity teams 
um, and being able to um, involve them in the cybersecurity trainings. Um, I'm not speaking about uh, classified operations, right? Mm -hmm. But I speak about um, at least sharing experience um, on the level of trainings, right? If not right. to go too deep in highly regulated um, zone, but to be able to, um, for example, Ukrainian government gave green light to um, cybersecurity specialists. And why is, I call them, um ethical hackers right because it's a specific occupation that is currently in a gray zone so what ukrainian government did they kind of like shed a light on uh, a big um category of professionals in it and who are certified ethical hackers and allow them to help ukrainian government officially to participate in operations. And that's how we got involved, actually. Um, we, our team volunteered, um, and still volunteering, to assist um, in communication between diverse uh, cybersecurity teams from around the world, right? right. And be aligned with uh, certain operations and policies existing um, in the Ukrainian government but being more flexible and being more open because we have to recognize that there are bad guys and, and good guys in cybersecurity, you know, and to right. be able to beat the black hats, we have to have an army, what we may call them cybersecurity army or a group of ethical people who are aligned with ethics and, and the values of democracy of the Western world. And sooner we will engage them, it it's, will benefit more U.S. Um, let me uh, ask you about uh, cybersecurity. Um, that's become a very big uh, focus, given that, unfortunately, hacking attacks have compromised some very important uh, capabilities. Uh, hacking attacks on our defense industrial base, uh, whether it's anti-missile capability, whether it's our stealth aircraft uh, capability, or even uh, undersea uh, capability. Um, there's a huge focus on this to increase industrial base security from your standpoint. Uh, and obviously the, you know, Biden administration has been working on a sort of zero trust, uh, model, uh, in the strategy uh, that came out earlier this year, but from your standpoint, what are the keys to improving that security as you look and draw lessons from a country at war on one side uh, of the planet and another one that's trying to deter uh, war from breaking out, uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. So. I'd like to begin uh, by saying that I don't want to point fingers, first of all, but a quick look at the daily media and the cyber landscape in general paints a very clear picture yet that, um, that it's difficult to find a company, especially in the defense industry, that has not fallen victim to cyber breaches over the years. Right. And we all know the um, accident that happened with the Chinese j31 technically a stolen version of f35 and when um us uh spent billions of dollars on developing this uh technology and because of the cyber attack it was technically stolen so um foreign um 
stakeholders, particularly Russia and China, have been systematically targeting U.S. companies, stealing valuable research and development. And we must, we have to recognize that it's not just a matter of corporate concern. It affects our national security. And by saying our national security, I, I speak about the U.S. since I'm U.S. resident. So right. uh, to, to address these concerns, uh, we must adopt a proactive approach to cybersecurity. And we've been advocating for um, developing more cyber offense policies rather than cyber defense. And that's what, for example, um, I want to give a great example. Um, our chief informational officer, Tadej uh, he is a, a president of Slovenian um, Federation of Ethical Hackers um, in Eastern right. Europe. He, he is also um, the um, witness and expert in NATO um, and uh, on uh, cyber defense. So um, as a cybersecurity advisor, he's been advising governments around the world and he's advising our company on how to build uh, a, a, a better cybersecurity services and policies based on offense way of thinking. We cannot be in defense situation the whole time when U.S. Right. Uh, critical infrastructure under attack. Like think about uh, what happened in U.S. two weeks ago in Las Vegas when major casinos right. became such an easy target for uh, a group of uh, hackers. So um, it's, 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 it's on the line the, um, everywhere. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to a last question, and we've got, unfortunately, about a minute left. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your growth uh, strategy. Capital can be a little bit of a challenge. Where do you guys want to be, say, five years from now, and how do you get there? Uh, we want to be able to bring the best practices, first of all, from cybersecurity space to the governmental agencies, but also to corporates. Um, again, um, the cybersecurity currently, uh, uh, I mean, the annual global damages caused by cyber crimes uh, is about $8 trillion. Right. So this figure speaks for itself. I mean, we would like to serve first, of course, the interests and best interests of, of U.S. government as a, as a company uh, that gathered unique um, uh, talents in cybersecurity from Ukraine, but also from around the world of Ukrainian nation of nationals. But also, we want to uh, serve corporates and to improve their um, cybersecurity capabilities and policies. So the growth I see definitely in cyber direction more than in defense direction, and um, we want to uh, be able to maybe influence on uh way of thinking that currently governmental agencies have about independent cybersecurity groups. So we represent 1,400 uh, certified ethical hackers, and we want to be able uh, to be that bridge, right, between them, between the right. hands and the brains, and the uh, critical infrastructure in the U.S. and between the governmental agencies who might need this knowledge, who might need this experience and expertise. 
Uh, it is an incredible business model, uh, Veronica. Uh, thanks very much for joining us uh, and giving the audience a taste of what it is uh, you guys do and how do you do it. Uh, and would love to have, uh, whether it's you or others from your team, join us on a regular basis. Would love to have your guys' voice uh, in the discussion. Thanks so very much. Absolutely. We'll be really honored to do so. Thank you. Thank you very much for this invitation.